0: Hello and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host Tara Kelly and today we'll be talking about verification for your data stories. Joining us is BuzzFeed's media editor Craig Silverman who is also the editor of the verification handbook on disinformation and media manipulation coming out in April 2020. He also teaches a fantastic free course, on the basics of verification on datajournalism.com. When using data as a source for your stories, accuracy is key. There's nothing worse than investing weeks in a database to later find out that you've got it wrong. Craig talks to us about verifying the numbers along with his own experience of working alongside BuzzFeed's data team. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Craig. Craig thanks so much for joining us today on conversations with data um, can you tell us a little about how you got into verification in the first place and you became BuzzFeed's fake news expert
1: yeah well I mean thanks for having me the journey to where we are now started in all the way back in 2004 so I'm sort of like showing my age I guess as, as describing this um, I, I was at that time I was a freelance journalist I was living in Montreal and uh, and blogging was, you know, still relatively new at that point. And uh, and I was, you know, really excited by it the idea that you don't need to, you know, have a huge infrastructure or technical or, you know, printing presses or that kind of thing to just start publishing and uh, or know how to code for that matter. And so. I ended up starting a media blog and it was called Regret the Air, and it really focused on initially just like finding the best of the worst of mistakes and corrections being made by journalists and media organizations. So, you know, right away, uh, verification is something that I'm thinking about because it's like, well, how, how did this mistake happen or how could it have been prevented? And. Over time, as I was collecting you know hundreds and then thousands and then I don't know maybe tens of thousands of these corrections, and really start thinking about and researching the discipline of verification and it's something that journalists talk about a lot. you know it's our job to get things right, verification is at the core of what we do, but you know what how do you actually do it, and is it ever taught and at that point, and even to a certain extent, still today, you know there aren't usually verification courses in journalism schools. it's usually integrated in a bunch of different things, and so I started that blog and and it really evolved over time from, you know, corrections and transparency and accuracy to really thinking about the, you know, the discipline of verification about how we can be accountable as journalists to uh, to the public, to our audiences, to the you know, our sources. And of course, as social media takes off, you know, we get to like 2010, 2011, And verification is really undergoing a massive shift suddenly there's so much information and so much content that is circulating on Twitter or Facebook or or what-have-you at the time that we have to figure out how to verify tweets and verify YouTube videos because there's tremendous newsworthy material there but there's also a lot of rumors and uncorroborated information and fakes and hoaxes and that kind of thing and so at that point, that's that's when I start really getting interested in in verification, social media, you know, online rumors, hoaxes, all those kinds of things. And that, um, you know, that led to uh, editing the first verification handbook for the European Journalism Center, which came out in early 2014. And then I spent, you know, most of the rest of that year on a research project looking at how news organizations were covering uh, unverified claims, doing that for the Tow Center at Columbia. Uh, and that's when I came across, you know, websites that kind of looked like web- news websites had articles on them, but everything was completely 100% false and fake. And I started just referring to them as fake news websites, and started, you know, really talking about them and saying, hey, this is a huge problem because these things are getting massive engagement on Facebook, and the debunking efforts are getting a tiny fraction. And uh, so that's sort of when the term fake news starts for me. And then I joined BuzzFeed in 2015, and. Um, You know, we've spent some time building our editorial team in Canada, but otherwise have been, you know, really focused just on reporting in this area. And it's broadened out from just like things that are 100% false to all different kinds of, you know, false, misleading, manipulated kinds of information and also all different kinds of media manipulation in general, whether it's, you know, people stealing money with digital advertising fraud or shady consultants manipulating search engine results, we have a very uh, open, which is great, but also easily manipulated media environment. And that's that's kind of what I'm thinking a lot about and reporting on these days.
0: And when do you think was the moment, the exact moment when fake news really became a thing?
1: I mean, I think, uh, well, so there's two important phases in my mind mm-hmm. of, of fake news kind of as the term, but also the general kind of global interest in this this larger area. Uh, and I at this point, I mean, I try to avoid using the term fake news as much as possible, unless I'm like describing what I was seeing in 2014 and that kind of thing, because because it's so weaponized uh, now. But uh, obviously, at the end of 2016 and, you know, right before the U.S. election, I, you know, I was publishing stories using the term fake news in the headline. And a week before Election Day in 2016, I published a story about teens and young men in Macedonia running pro-Trump websites that you know, some of their most viral content or, you know, a significant portion of their most viral content was completely false. And that story, you know, got a fair amount of attention when it came out. And I did a follow up that was actually published on Election Day. And then post Election Day, you know, Trump wins and people are like, you know, shocked and in some cases freaking out and wondering how did this completely, you know, not predicted, unbelievable result happen. And I think for some people who went looking for an easy explanation. They said, well, you know, there's all this fake news and it it fooled people and they voted for Trump. And that's what happened. And, you know, uh, I think it was about 10 days after the election, I published uh, a study where I looked at, you know, top performing completely false fake content and top performing legitimate election content. And you saw this massive spike leading up to the election. So it was a problem. It was particularly prevalent on Facebook. but I think people started, you know, trying to explain what was a, a surprising and complex result, which is Trump's victory, with a simple thing, which was blaming fake news. And all of a sudden, you know, we have this nice awakening of, gosh, what is going on in our media environment? How is this stuff that is completely false coming from these, you know, weird, anonymously run websites? In many cases, getting you know hundreds of thousands or millions of engagements on Facebook. Um, you know, good questions about what is happening in our media environment but you know, some wrong conclusions. And at that point, I think Trump starts to feel like people are questioning the legitimacy of his result, of his victory. And so in January, he gives his first press conference and he walks out on stage and he gets a question from Jim Acosta at CNN. And instead of answering the question, he basically says, I won't answer your question. He says, you are fake news. Uh, And he points at Jim Acosta. And at that moment, and there was like a, a reaction in the room And a reaction for tons of people like on Twitter and other watching it. And, um, you know, and I think I I don't know if he expected to to do that leading into the press conference. And that's the second moment where Trump takes ownership of the term and he starts using it and everybody starts talking about it and debating it. And, you know, and we've just had really at this point, we've had three years of that now.
0: And are there any parts of the world where you feel like you're seeing fake news more than others? Like, for instance, are certain political climates maybe a better breeding ground for
1: this? It's interesting, because, uh, you know, it is it is kind of a global phenomenon. And, and you know, so what is a global phenomenon? Well, it's a global phenomenon that anywhere, you know, there is a decent amount of, of internet penetration and usage, and anywhere that there's also, you know, uh, the penetration of Facebook or WhatsApp or other kinds of social networks or messaging apps, um, mixed with mobile phone access, you have an explosion in the amount of content information flowing. And as part of that, of course, you have stuff that is false, that is misleading, that is manipulated. And um, and I think people in a lot of countries around the world, regardless of the type of government, are struggling to kind of you know get through this sea of information of you know very different sourcing and very different quality um, and. And so you know we see this happening in democracies, uh, in you know the United States and, and elsewhere. We see it happening in emerging democracies, like uh, in the Philippines, you know, um, where where they're still sort of coming out of the you know a more kind of authoritarian uh, dictatorship type of, of government, and you know have been having free elections for some time now, but still um, you know still developing democracy there. And uh, and it's been a, a a huge issue in the Philippines. You can also look within autocratic governments like China, where control over the information space is absolutely core to the communist party's um, you know function and role and priorities. And they you know there is a huge amount of censorship there. So it, it looks a little bit different. Where you know in democracies where there's free speech, it's about the abundance of information. It's about you know using free speech to then spread stuff that is false, misleading, hateful, um, you know, harassing and really exploiting those, you know, the values and the openness in order to to try and, you know, push people in certain directions, uh, confuse, mislead people. And in an author- authoritarian place like China, for them you have, you know, massive censorship and then you also have, you know, state-controlled information operations um, that are meant to kind of influence and control the population. And so, you have these variations from one region in one country to the next. Lots of Facebook in some places. It's lots of you know WhatsApp or Telegram or Line. Um, in China, you have you know control over WeChat and other things like that. It is kind of a universal struggle. If you have the internet and you know social networks and you have mobile phones, like this is something you are grappling with for sure.
0: Can you just? explain to us what the difference is between misinformation and disinformation because i often see these terms floating around and i'm, I'm kind of confused by what's the difference
1: this is i mean i think this is a byproduct of um fake news becoming a term that is widely used but now is kind of meaningless and people when people say fake news they can mean very different things and so i've you know i try to avoid uh, using it unless it's in the context of you know specifically talking about that term and what's happened to it and and misinformation and disinformation I think are two good terms um, the difference and and I, I you know I credit uh, Claire Wardle and the folks at First Draft who have done some work on trying to clarify terms here um, and so you know the definition for disinformation is 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 I think best given as. Um, you know, false information that is created to deceive, so there is, you know, an effort at least in in the original stages of knowing and creating and spreading it, um, and, and so that is, you know, that's a difference about the content, and there's also intent there. It is in, intended to deceive, it's knowingly created and spread, and then misinformation is really about accidental spread of false or misleading information, and this is... This is a really big piece of the puzzle here because you can have people who are absolutely well-meaning, who have no intention of spreading something that's false or misleading, but who passed along because you know, maybe they think it's important information and they think it's true, um, or maybe because it came from a friend. And uh, and they trust that friend, so they think it's true. And a lot of the time you'll hear me referring to misinformation and disinformation because I think it is important to have those distinctions between the type of content, you know, is it 100% false, is it misleading, is it manipulated? And then also the original intent of the information, is it created to deceive or is it actually accidentally being propagated? Um, and so those are, and, and that opens the door to sort of thinking about the complexity of this, where you have different motivations, different kinds of people, different people propagating things for different reasons, and then also different types of content that you know may be problematic for different reasons.
0: Now, you've got an updated version of the verification handbook coming out soon. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm really, I'm really excited about this. Uh, you know, we published the first handbook in 2014 and so now you know the information environment has really evolved and changed a lot since 2014 and uh, and so this this handbook is really focused on investigating disinformation and media manipulation so instead of the context of kind of emergency situations and breaking news situations this is about um, disinformation and misinformation and we've got I think it's about eleven chapters, <clears throat> six or seven case studies, and and just like with the first handbook, I went out and I found people who I feel are like some of the best practitioners in this area. Um, so we have folks from uh, NBC News, from Rappler in the Philippines, from BBC Africa. Um, we also have people from you know research uh, orga- organizations like Citizen Lab. Uh, uh, and uh, and other places like that, and so I think it's a, a really good mix of different expertise, and also we have examples coming from different parts of the world where it's you know we, we don't have a North American bias or a Western Europe bias. There's there's good stuff uh, from Brazil, from the Philippines, from West Papua, and places um, to sort of show the global extent of this. And so, like the first handbook, it is going to be free. It's going to be available online. And it will be, you know, launching in early April. And I'm excited about getting this out there for journalists and other people to be able to have this resource that is free and easily available to them to do this work.
0: Is there any one chapter you think is a must read for a data journalist?
1: Um, you know, I think uh, I think there's, uh, so we have a chapter and a case study around, um, you know, looking at inauthentic. Uh, accounts and activity. And, you know, it talks about about bots and bots are a topic that you see people discussing a lot. And I think there's a lot of really bad uh, work saying, well, this is this is, you know, this must be a bot, this account or this group of accounts must be bots. And I think that's a place where data journalists might be really interested because, you know, you're making a determination based on data, uh, typically whether you're determining you know an account is authentic or not. And so we have some, a good chapter and some good case studies that show some of the tools and approaches gathering the, for example, tweets from an account or a set of accounts, how you might do that, how either you know, from the Twitter API or if using tools, and, and what are the kinds of patterns and things you want to look for in that data and in that activity. And so it's a mix of an opportunity with somebody you know, who knows Python or who knows how to get data from a, an API endpoint to you know to gather data and then you know you can think about how you want to sort and analyze that data but it also, I think, gives data journalists some really great just kind of mindset and, and, and very human and non-technical approaches for how you think about inauthentic activity in our social media environment. And, it, and I think it might inspire data journalists to think about new ways of kind of gathering and analyzing this data. So I suspect that's those chapters and case studies around – particularly around Twitter and around bots um, will be really interesting for folks in the data journalism community.
0: You've covered countless stories on media manipulation, most notably the Macedonia fake news industry, the Amazon fake reviews. I'm just curious, when you're covering this beat, do you ever use data skills yourself?
1: I am not able to to program. Um, I you know I know some basic HTML. I took an an R programming course at. Uh, um at IRE uh a couple of years ago which which I really loved uh and but I'm I'm really not proficient enough to be applying that uh, in my work and so for me um you know data is really important and and gathering and analyzing data is really important but you know I'm often using pre-existing tools to help me do that so for example I use CrowdTangle a lot which is uh, a great tool and platform where you can query for you know Facebook posts from pages and also Instagram posts, uh, you know going back in time, and you can you know sort that data and then you can pull uh, historical data and get that as a downloadable CSV. Uh, and so I do a lot of my work in you know Excel or Google Sheets in terms of you know creating uh, creating tables, uh, you know looking at that data, cleaning the data, gathering the data sorting and filtering the data to try and get the insights that I'm looking for. And so for me, that's, I do a lot of spreadsheet work and, uh, and, and a lot of times I'm pulling the data, you know, maybe from CrowdTangle or frankly, building spreadsheets manually doing, doing that kind of work. Now, I'm really fortunate that at BuzzFeed News, we have a data journalism team um, led by Jeremy Singerbine, who is fantastic and who I've done a whole bunch of stories with, and so w- when you know when there is a a data component to it, or the manual approach is going to be insanely time intensive, and there's clearly a, a way to you know produce a script to gather it, um, I team up with Jeremy, and we've done a lot of stories together, and it's a really great partnership, and we're very fortunate to have folks in our newsroom with those skills who really love teaming up um and partnering up on stories uh and so for me you know i i'm like i I don't have advanced skills in this area um i make the most with what i have and then partner up with folks who have them and i think you know obviously i think one of the bad trends in newsrooms has often been to treat like data journalists as like a service desk where it's like hey data friend go pull this for me and then let me go do the reporting and so we don't we don't treat Jeremy and his team that way. They are you know, 100% full collaborators and they just bring a whole other skill set and, and mindset to it.
0: So thinking about open data, sometimes I think journalists can assume because it comes from a, a government source or the World Bank or the UN, it must be accurate. What's your advice on that for verifying open data?
1: Yeah, that's a it's a really important question. And actually, I mean, we did a, um, a sort of second edition of the handbook uh, after the first one came out in 2014 called the, uh, you know, the verification handbook for investigative reporting. And, uh, and that has chapters with, uh, you know, with some great data journalists and walking you through how you sort of check it and clean it. And so, so that is, um, a really core approach. If you are, you know, gathering data out in the wild, even if it's coming from a seemingly reputable organization, I I don't think that you can simply take it and be like, all right, here we go. And, um, and just, and, and not do the basic checks on it. I mean, you know, obviously you need to do simple things like, okay, are there duplicates in the data set? And, and, you know, uh, one of the things that I always do is I'll look at it and, and just do sorting to kind of take, you know, the highest and the lowest and just look for those outlier values. Um, because, cause that right away may tell you that there's some stuff in this that is really not making sense. Um, and and just running quick pivot tables to sort of see like well what are the most you know frequent things that are occurring and and doing some basic checks on it like that. So that's something that that you know I will do myself with data that I'm pulling from elsewhere. We now have you know Twitter and sometimes uh, other platforms releasing data sets of you know accounts and other things that they've removed. And and it has absolutely been the case where people looking through these data sets have found you know, accounts that uh, clearly were not, for example, you know, an Iranian account or a, or a Chinese account and should not have been included in this takedown, should not have been included in this data set. And so I think it's a tremendous opportunity to not just sort of check the data and look to see if it's making sense as you start to, to work with it, but to also really interrogate it and say, you know, is this what they say it is and have, have they made mistakes in what they say they're doing?
0: And thinking about privacy, I'm curious um, if GDPR is a concern for journalists when they're trying to verify things. Has, has that made it harder for them?
1: I think one concrete place where it's, it's made things a little bit difficult is when it comes to accessing um, you know, WHOIS or DNS data. Uh, so GDPR has, uh, you know, has wiped out some of the records in terms of, you know, if you have a domain name you're interested in, you can do a who is search. And sometimes, you know, if the person hasn't paid for a privacy service, you can see the person or company, uh, you know, who purchased or owns that domain. And with GDPR, that has, has had some effect on the accessibility of those types of records. So that's one concrete example that we've been seeing. I uh, to this point, I have not encountered a scenario where stuff that i had before or you know i hit a complete dead end because of gdpr um i was frankly really worried about that when it first came in and maybe it's only a matter of time before that's going to happen for me but i would say for me personally um it hasn't had a huge effect but i think it's also still new enough that we don't fully know how it's going to play out
0: And I'm curious about how you archive your material and how important is that for your later investigations or
1: reporting? Uh, Insanely important is the short answer there. Um, So it's something that I think about a lot. And uh, so there's two kind of types of archiving that I'm doing. The first is uh, just gathering everything as I'm, you know, doing my work and doing, you know, looking online and doing the, the basic investigation. And uh, I use a tool for that called Hunchly. Uh, and this is uh, a tool developed by a guy who is an open source intelligence investigator named Justin Seitz. He He's based in Canada. He's really good. Um, he's also written some fantastic uh, Python tutorials and things like that for OSINT. So uh, data journalists may want to check those out. Uh, and So Hunchly is a paid tool, I'll say that off the bat. Um, But what Hunchly does is, um, you know, it's a browser extension that you install, and then you can create cases. So like for a specific story or specific investigation, you give it a name, and then you turn on the browser extension, and everything you're doing in the browser is going to be captured. All of your your searches are captured, every page you visit um, is captured, and Hunchly creates a private database on your computer. Um, and it has it has an app that you can open up to like you know browse what you've been saving and you can filter by enter by keywords and it also extracts things like um, you know email addresses and other things like that from all the web pages you've been you've been visiting and sort of sorts and structures that data for you uh, and so Hunchly to me is just like an essential companion as I'm doing these things because I don't have to worry about screenshotting. Or saving stuff in the Wayback Machine right away as I'm just like falling down my rabbit holes. Punchly is gathering all of it, and I can easily access that database at any time. So that's that's one core thing that I use. Then the second piece, of course, is that you know when you when you publish your investigation, you want to be able to point to the assets that you have seen, and it's absolutely the case that they may disappear at any moment uh, during your investigation, and so. One of the things that I'm also doing in addition to making sure Hunchley is grabbing stuff is I am saving things in the Wayback Machine or with Archive.today that I can then link to those in the future when I do my reporting so that they are there and the assets are publicly visible to document what I had found. Um, You know, and so that's an important thing for kind of the public record. And the other reason why it's important to do that is if you are reporting on information you know, let's say there's a website that's spreading false and misleading information. The last thing you wanna do is write an article and link directly to that website because one, you've given them a link which helps them with their their SEO and their search placement, right, and so that's a bad thing. And two, you're sending people to, you know, a website where they, you know, they may be misinformed. And and three, if there's ads on the website, then you're helping them monetize. So rather than linking directly to problematic um, operations and content, if you archive it, then you link to the archive. And, and that's a good thing for a few reasons. So it's definitely something that I think about.
0: You think that the media industry needs a redesign?
1: So I think um, I think realistically, um, you know, there's not going to be a massive slowing down, uh, you know, particularly for, for people living in different countries where there's been a lot of, you know, really remarkable, crazy, nonstop political developments. Um, and so I do think Uh, newsrooms have to make be conscious of the decisions they're making and newsrooms have to fight this drive and this desire to be first or to jump on something right away and that is a that is is a permanent problem because that is a that is a permanent tension we have in our newsrooms and so thinking about do we need to put this out right now Um, what do we know about it for sure and and how are we serving the audience by putting this information out right now that's those are really basic questions and they take on a real sense of urgency um, in situations of you know, emergency or urgent or breaking news situations um, where information is really, really essential but also hard to come by. Uh, and so, so that thinking is really important. You develop good verification skills for the digital environment as well as good traditional reporting and verification skills. Um, you over time will be able to be faster because you're practicing, because you know what to look for, the questions, the questions to ask, the tools to use, and so if we actually cultivate our verification skills and we develop them and keep them up to date, and we spread you know basic verification skills to as many journalists and as many newsrooms as possible then then the bar gets raised and it is easier to figure stuff out faster and so you know that's that's a message related to speed that i think is really important is for people to understand that if you are not working and thinking about developing your skills in this area if you don't have that stuff then speed is going to be really problematic for you if you have that stuff you know what to do relatively quickly in a certain situation and while you may not always get a satisfactory answer um, at least you know the basic checks to run and so i think that's that's a, a message around speed that's really important, and it's, and it's why these verification handbooks, I think, are so, so essential, is because like, they're free, and they're available, and they're written by experts in a way that's really um, meant to give people actionable, useful, hands-on advice, and we also do not require any level of technical expertise. Um, and so that's, that's a good starting point for people. At the same time, I think if you are a data journalist and you have some more advanced skills, um, looking at this material and thinking about how you can build on it and and supplement your technical skills with you know OSINT skills and other verification skills so um, i think we shouldn't hesitate to rethink our media environment and how we do our jobs better uh, but obviously on a really basic level i mean if more journalists um were had better verification skills i think we would avoid some of the pitfalls that you see in those urgent you know early moments uh where mistakes often get made thanks
0: so much for talking to us today craig um can you just tell us a bit about what's happening in Perugia for the book launch?
1: Yeah, so there's this wonderful event in Perugia, Italy, every year called the International Journalism Festival. And uh, so there is going to be one day of uh, workshops, panels, and a launch party for the handbook. And so, April 2nd, there's going to be a panel with some of the contributors from the handbook talking about what we've worked on. We're going to have workshops about, um, you know, spotting inauthentic activity and bots on Twitter, and then we have a launch party for the handbook uh, for folks who were there on the evening of April second. So it's a it's a day of, you know, free and open access workshops and panels, uh, and it's also a day where you know we're going to bring lots of people together from the community of people who've contributed to this and who are interested in this kind of work. Um, to come together for an event that night. So I think it's it's going to be a really great and useful day for people.
0: Okay, great. Thanks so much, Craig. Thanks. Thanks, Bye-bye. Bye. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. If you enjoyed our interview with Craig, you can hear more from him at the International Journalism Festival in Perugia on the 2nd of April. And that's when he'll be launching his latest verification handbook. We'll be announcing more details about the event in our Conversations with Data newsletter. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.